The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay. So as uh, Tanya was uh, saying, now you're uh, now in an official program, (laughs) and the first official program um, begins today. And uh, what I want to do at this moment uh, is to just say a few words about um, the uh, teaching that we'll be offering for today. And this is the first path factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. Noble Eightfold Path have eight path factors. The first one is um, often translated as right view or wise view, wise understanding. And so uh, I will share a few words uh, as an introductory and overview of this path factor. And Tanya and Chris will uh, take a deeper dive um, in today's, today's session as well. And so um, I want to start by making an analogy. And um, so in this way that um, if you're taking a long journey, uh, to go somewhere that you've not been to before. Uh, it will be really helpful to um, somehow orient yourself at the beginning of the journey and maybe um, getting to know a bit what this journey is about, right? Um, and, and maybe also continue to orient yourself all along the way so you're sure eventually you will get to where you wanted to go. And so in this way, uh, walking the Noble Eightfold Path, um, for most of us, is a long journey. Maybe for many of us, it's a lifetime journey. And so in the same way, uh, it's really helpful um, for us to get a sense on what this journey is about, uh, where this journey is leading to. And for a long journey, there are many opportunities to get lost uh, in between. And uh, so it's great to also check uh, from time to time all along the way. Uh, um, are we going in the, the right direction? Um, are we on the path still? And so um, I remember um, my son when he was a baby, um, Going to the toy store and getting him out of the toy store is a long journey. Often he gets lost in the aisles of the toys. And we had to keep reminding ourselves that the exit door is where we're going. (laughs) So so that way. And so this uh, first path factor, uh, wise view, wise understanding, um, is about establishing the sense of direction and having some understanding of what this Noble Eightfold Path is about. And so uh, since I'm uh, offering a short summary of what this is, and so um, I'm going to just summarize uh, in a very short statement and that the Noble Eightfold Path addresses the phenomenon of this Pali term dukkha and oftentimes gets translated as something like suffering or stress. 
And what it's pointing at is the fact that no matter who we are, uh, we know and experience ups and downs in our lives. Uh, we experience all kinds of challenges in our lives. I think for all of us in this last year and a half or so, we probably all have experienced some sort of pain in small or big ways and some form of a loss, right? And so we all know this in some way, one way or another. So uh, the Noble Eightfold Path has a lot to do with this. Um, so no doubt, a dukkha exists in our lives. Um, but if our, if our understanding ends here, that will be pretty hopeless, right? Because you know we know no one escaped from this. But now what? Fortunately, uh, the Buddha, who also realized the truth of a dukkha that exists in our lives, sought the way to end the dukkha once and for all. And he not only realized the truth of a dukkha, but also discovered the cause of dukkha, which is craving. And he was able to end the dukkha for himself once and for all. And for all of us, maybe the most um, significant aspect of us doing this class is the fact that he also showed a path that leads to the ending of a dukkha. And this path is the Noble Eightfold Path. And so in summary, um, this Noble Eightfold Path is a dukkha ending path. And the first path factor, right view, um, is about gaining some perspectives and understanding of the truth of the dukkha, the cause of it, the ending of it, and the path that leads to the ending of the dukkha. And this is a classically called the Four Noble Truths. Um, a big part of the right view, wise view, um, is to get to know the Four Noble Truths. And I also wanted to say that uh, besides the Four Noble Truths, there is also another significant component of uh, the right view um, that's worthwhile mentioning. And that is the, and that is the, um, this one statement I'll make and that all actions have consequences. We all know this, right? And you plant tomatoes, you get tomatoes. You've spent a lot of time being anxious. Your body probably hurt at some point. So it may seem mundane, but on an extraordinary level, this one truth has everything to do with our lives. For example, if we want a happy and peaceful life, free from stress, this is a statement to ask ourselves, are we taking actions that will lead to happiness and peace and well-being? And this is also, it connects with the Four Noble Truths. And what it says is that if we want to be free from Dukkha, walk the Noble Eightfold Path. And so the uh, right view has all of this uh, several different components here. Uh, I'm going to just show you this one slide. 
Um, let me see if I can do this to share screen right here. And so you get a little visual of what this might uh, mean to you. And then that'll be, um, you're able to see the screen here. Yeah. Give me a thumbs up. So, Yang, it was, the image was there and now it just says loading. Oh, there we go. Okay. And it takes a little time to load. And so you see um, that um, the component of this, the Four Noble Truths, and then this, um, I would say, uh, uh, maybe a general component of the fact that actions has consequences. And so this is a picture I just want to offer uh, at this moment. So, okay, I'm going to stop sharing and to pause and see if there is one or two questions um, about what I had just said um, or about the logistics at all. So uh, any questions at this moment, you have to use your mechanical hand in a Zoom. And if not, um, we are going to maybe do a guided meditation um, to allow ourselves to have some experiential um, kind of a taking in of this information and also ground ourselves slightly deeper. Okay, so we'll be sitting together for about 15 minutes. It's a short meditation. And so take a few moments, just allow yourself to arrive and settle into a posture. Um, if you need a few moments to uh, adjust your body, uh, move your body in some way before you settle into a uh, steady posture. Feel free to do that. The first a few moments. Often useful to take a few long deep breaths. Just a few deep breaths. Allow yourself to arrive here more fully. As you breathe out, maybe letting go any preoccupations. Allow yourself to Feel a sense of grounding right here. Arriving 
arriving to here and now. Arriving at the inner space. And sometimes there's an image of walking into the inner temple. Allow ourselves to arrive in the inner temple of our being. Feel into a sense of being grounded by the floor, the chairs. Resting in the sensations of the contact. Pressure, temperature. Allow the torso to rise up from the grounded place. Maybe a sense of uplifting. Arms and shoulders, naturally hand. Use any tension that may be around the shoulders or neck. Soften the muscles on the face. Just sense what it feels like when the whole body is being received by your awareness right here.
lets the felt sense of arrived, arrived at here and now, this moment. Collect to your mind to here and now as well. Maybe by resting your attention in the bodily sensations or the movements of the breath. Noticing any tension that may arise in your experience. Whether there is a tightness in the belly, contraction in the chest. Agitation in the mind. So nothing to do about them, just seeing and receiving the experience. Just knowing attention may be existent, maybe here. There is any form of a discontent that may arise. Wanting something else to happen. Wishing something to go away. You just know this is dukkha. Dukkha is present. When they pass, 
resting your attention back in the body. Right heel is related to seeing and knowing in our lived experience what is happening. last a few moments of our meditation together. I invite you to relax deeper. Relax deeper in your embodied experience. And relax the mind.
Thank you, Ying. Thank you so much. Such a lovely uh, overview and uh, nice way to connect with the felt sense of relaxation and dukkha, stress in the body. So um, I'm going to talk about primarily dukkha in the the Four Noble Truths, the first two. And I just want to start by saying that um, the Eightfold Path uh, is considered the noble path of the Dharma, right? And really the noble part is usually referencing the people who are walking the path. It's not that the path itself is what is noble. And the way that it's depicted is by the running, a very smooth wheel running. And and so if you just think about the moments in your meditation where there was smoothness, things were flowing, the breath was coming and going, and then getting caught, a bump in a thought, a story, some tension, some stress, Right, so this is this is sort of a simile for for being on the noble path. Is that as we work the path, our lives and our experience can become more and more smooth in this in this way. And some consider this the very most important step on the path. Now they're all incredibly important, but the reason that this might be considered one of the or the most important step by some is that. The idea is that with right view, all the other path factors can follow easily. They line up. We move from one to the next, each building on the one before it. So what is, you know, let's take a minute just to talk more about view I think Ying mentioned this too, but essentially it's to see or to look. And it's a way of looking and it's an orientation. What we choose to keep our focus on, what we choose to keep in view. And so when we come into the noble path, we're adopting an orientation that incorporates this understanding that everything we do is consequential and that we have choices to make along the way, right? And we want to make them consciously. So this view gives us a frame of reference, a way of looking and understanding our experience. And what this offers us is it roots us, it helps us plant our feet so that the way that we're looking, the way that we're seeing can become a grounded spot of what is helpful and to notice what is unhelpful. And this view offers us a way to the end of suffering. And it assists us in choosing to move forward toward more freedom away from the suffering I just want to mention here this idea of wise. You'll also read in your readings the term right, right view, wise view, 
and wrong view. And so I want to just clarify what is meant here. So by the word wise or right, what we're referencing here is that which is helpful, that which is wholesome, or even considered beautiful. And what is wrong is what is harmful or unwholesome. And it can be easily thought of it in this analogy. If you, you know, have a screw and you need to put it into wood, is a hammer or a screwdriver the right tool, the wise tool to use? So if we use a hammer to try and put a screw in wood, it's not going to work very well. It will be harmful to the wood, probably to our hands, you know, and uh, not useful, right? But if we use the right tool, then the screw can be screwed into the wood and, and operate in the way that it is meant to, is needed. So it's um, important It's important to recognize um, this in a way because it can help us not get tangled up in a lot of self-criticism and doubt. Now, it's very important to pay attention to when we feel badly about something. I'm not suggesting we don't ignore that or that we ignore that, but rather to try and start to relate to how we're relating from a perspective of understanding it from wisdom. Not I'm a bad or stupid person, I use the wrong tool, but oh, this isn't working. This isn't useful. Let me try a different way. So what is fundamental to know for me about wise view is essentially the aim here or the foundation, the ground is around freedom from suffering and not causing harm to self, other, or both, right? And there are these two beautiful guardrails that I think help us stay on this path if we tune into them, if we connect with them. Chris will talk about the second guardrail, which is about this consequential nature of our actions. And the other guardrail is rooted in a fundamental understanding of the Four Noble Truths. And the guardrail that is most obvious um, or really the one that is important for us to create a healthy relationship with is dukkha. And when we are connected with wise view, we can notice some things. We can notice that there is a deep intention or wish inside of ourselves not to cause harm. And it is very important to always include harm, not wanting to harm others, ourselves, or both. We also notice that um, we understand that we have a choice, that we can really deeply invest and that we have choices. We just might have to push the brakes harder to pause and stop what's happening, to not continue on in our habitual ways. 
And to know that when we do pause, when we do stop, we do make choice, that we have an impact. Another thing that we'll notice when we're connected with wives' view is that we'll value the peace and the ease that arise when we're engaging our life in this way from the perspective of the Noble Eightfold Path. And we'll feel pain when we cause harm to ourselves and to others. And we will care about that pain. We will know that it's important to notice. Let's talk for a minute just a little bit more about the Four Noble Truths. So this fundamental first truth is that dukkha exists. Now this could be considered pain, stress, suffering, a lack of ease. It's a whole continuum from very, very subtle to more significant and impactful. One very helpful thing is to notice tension in your body as we did in the meditation. Typically, when we're having some experience of dukkha, there will also be some stress or tension in the body. And the second noble truth is that there is a cause for dukkha. There is a reason for this pain. And it's actually optional. And this is what was so pivotal and so significant about the Buddhist teaching. And the cause of this dukkha is clinging. Now we can cling to all kinds of things. And sometimes it's very obvious what we're clinging to. Other times it's not so obvious. Right? So sometimes the clinging and the suffering we might notice is so obvious because we've lost something dear, right? And we don't want to have lost that thing, that person, that relationship, that whatever is precious to us. Now what's optional about when we think about what are we clinging to, right? It's not wanting to have lost something that has been lost. That's the dukkha we're talking about, not the pain of of separation necessarily as about the clinging to it, right? Typically, we can see and help ourselves identify what we're clinging to if we pay attention to the sense of wanting something more, wanting something different, and not wanting something. This is generally greed, aversion, and delusion operating in the mind. This is where the mind is wanting to hold, wanting to expand, wanting to keep it coming, whatever it is, right? And we're clinging, we start to cling to that. And it's it's fueled by this greed of this wanting And you can see this idea if we're grabbing and holding, this is the clinging to wanting more, that if we can recognize, ah, I'm I'm holding on to a wish, I am clinging to this want with greed, right, or with desire, or just with wanting, whatever word works for you. And we can stop and we can turn toward, like, okay, And do I want to keep grabbing in this way, right? 
And this is where, you know, Chris will talk about the end of dukkha and the path that leads to the cessation, complete cessation of dukkha. But this first truth of dukkha and the cause of dukkha, right? So this idea of our relationship to dukkha, many people, most people habitually, when they have something that doesn't feel good, that feels like bad news, our instant usual reaction is what? What do we do? Make some gestures. Yeah, hands up, push it away, uh, put my head under a pillow, right? This is almost, the, it's almost an instinct, right? Or we, maybe it even is a self-protective instinct, that grows in us, that's encouraged in us by our society, right? And our way of living. It's, that is just going to be likely one of the first responses. So understanding that is important. And we can work with that. If we bring wisdom to our understanding of dukkha, if we bring wise view to recognizing dukkha, we have the opportunity to completely transform our relationship to suffering. So a very simple example is if we go out and we find that our car has a flat tire. Now, if we are really in a rush and caught up in how this can't be happening right now because I have to get to the airport or I have to pick up my child or I have to do this and I can't, this can't be happening to me right now. We are reacting to the dukkha with resistance, right? And we are adding to our suffering. Pretty soon we're so tangled up in knots. We're having a panic attack or we're calling everybody we know. We've got AAA on the phone and, you know, we're, we're like still trying to maneuver this, the appointment we have next to reschedule it. Like there's just this massive activity that can be going on. All coming from a place of tremendous agitation and discomfort. But we can also walk out and notice that we have a flat tire. And if we're right there with it, we'll see, oh, and then we can go, of course. Of course, tires get flat tires. This is the nature of our life. This is what happens. And if we have that response come up, what happens next? What's the next reaction if we say, okay, yep, tires get flat. What kind of a mind rises up next? Very different, right? Much less suffering will follow. So there's this wonderful mathematical formula for kind of thinking about dukkha. And the mathematical formula goes like this. There's pain, the flat tire, times our resistance. So the pain times how much we're resisting equals the amount of suffering or dukkha that we're going to 
generates. Does that make sense? Pain times our resistance. The more we resist, the more suffering there will be. All right, so I'm going to take a breath and check my timing. See where I'm at. Okay. So I'm getting near the end. It's okay. These are the most important things I've shared. And um, so just to like, I'm going to give you some few takeaways and just, but I just want to really hone in here on your relationship to seeing Dukkha is going to change your life. Your relationship to recognizing suffering is the key for many of us, much of the time, in either moving toward or away from more suffering. So I'll give you an example, another example, and this is a nice little, for me, a little ditty that I like. To me, dukkha is like, in one way, the rumble strips on the side of a freeway. They are there to wake you up. They are not there to be quiet and smooth and pleasant. They are there because you are drifting off of the road. And they are startling. And they can be vibratory and loud, right? But they're there to prevent you from some other disaster. So. Most of us probably have learned once we've hit these rumble strips a time or two, oh, it's rumble strips, I'm drifting off, right? We don't pull over and call the highway department and file a complaint, right? We recognize that they are here for a purpose, and so is suffering. It's here to wake us up. And if we can... Just like if we drive over the rumble strips and we go, oh, and then we go, oh, thank God. We can also go, thank Buddha, (laughs) when we recognize suffering, the dukkha. Okay. So another little way to think about dukkha is it's a signpost, the flashing exit sign. Come this way. You've passed the exit for wise view. You know, get off and come back. <laughs> it's, um, I love this idea of a bumper sticker. I stop for suffering. Right? So this idea of committing to really paying attention to and noticing when suffering arises. And then here's a beautiful poem. This is part of a poem, and it's just maybe slightly adapted by this point by Jane Hirschfield. And it's suffering is to freedom as thirst is to water. So suffering is to freedom as thirst is to water. Well, let's take thirst to water. If we're thirsty, it's our body telling us we need something. Water, right? So if we learn to listen to the the, uh, signs in our body that we're thirsty, we will go and get ourselves a drink of water. However, if we are thirsty, but not really mindful and paying attention, we might grab a cup of coffee or a Diet Coke with caffeine. It will ultimately make us less hydrated, right? 
So paying attention to this suffering with wisdom is important for it to lead to freedom. If we want the suffering to lead to freedom, we need to see it with wisdom and not turn toward the suffering in ways that can kind of just dig us deeper, like eating a a gallon of ice cream, right? Might be a way that we respond to the suffering, but isn't going to lead us toward freedom. All right. Hola, Jin. Hola, Chris. Hola, Francisca. Buena vida. Hola. <laughs> Okay, I think we're mostly back. So we've looked at, we're looking at view through the lens of the Four Noble Truths and also the view of karma, that actions have consequences. So we've looked at the first Noble Truth that all kinds of unwanted, unpreferred experience is a basic fact of human existence. And the view of the second noble truth that what matters is how we're relating to these challenging circumstances. The reactions of craving, clinging, denial, and struggle, they add this a little bit hard to pin down quality of suffering. This just add suffering, add that flavor of suffering to what's going on. Whereas simple recognition, curiosity, cultivation of our capacities of compassion, awareness, equanimity, relieve the suffering, and that makes space for wiser actions in the world. So before we turn to the third and fourth noble truths, I just want to say a little bit more about karma, which has been implicit in everything that we're saying, that our actions of body, speech, and mind have consequences. And that our present time impulses to speak and think and act spring from this mostly unconscious conditioning, the habits, the momentum of how we have reacted in the past. So hurtful things happen to all of us, especially in childhood, when we're quite unconscious of any other way to respond. We do our best. We flinch, contract, shut down, lash out. That's the best we can do. And as these reaction patterns stay unconscious, we continue to react in that same way. And we develop fairly complex karmic tangles of memories, fears, habits, energy patterns that get reinforced in the mind and the body. So karma is actually the good news of all this. The popular version of the word meaning some kind of heavy fate is not at all the Buddhist view of it. It's good news because um, it's it's not our fault. There's a saying, you are not your fault. You know, it's not as, as uh, Tanya said, it's not I'm a stupid person or I'm a bad person. There aren't any fixed qualities like that. It's all a play of conditions, mostly unconscious. And now that you're becoming more conscious, 
your intentions and actions in the present can start to transform how you experience things in the future. Maybe the most famous passage in Buddhist literature is the beginning of the Dhammapada. It says, all experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind and happiness follows like a never departing shadow. So this importance of mind, you know, when we think of action, we think of doing things and speech. What is an action of mind? So in particular, there are these underdeveloped potentials in actions of our our heart mind and our more conscious use of our faculties of especially attention and intention. And as we learn to use these more wisely, then the faculty of mind that is perception and, and sees which things are threatening, which things are not threatening, which things are workable, which things are need some all-out survival response, that begins to shift. And the, the headwinds of karma begin to be more on the side of less and less reaction in a way that causes suffering. Steve Hoskinson says, Directing our mental stream through our associational networks is like sailing a small boat through large waves in the ocean. So we have these large waves of all of our associations of every good and bad thing that ever happened to us and steering our present time mental stream through that wisely is a lot of our practice. So moment by moment, drop by drop, what you think about, what you attend to, what you intend is either reinforcing the old habits or it's strengthening new ones. And so we come to the third noble truth the truth of the cessation of suffering. So, of course, one way to understand this, as as Tanya mentioned, is as an arhat, arhats supposedly do not suffer. I can't personally testify to what the mind of an arhat is like, but um, there's clearly a direction towards a lessening of suffering. And I'm going to be speaking about the small moments of the of non-suffering that we can where we can get a taste of what's meant really by this additional dukkha in Tanya's formula of of pain plus resistance equals suffering all the little flavors of what what does it mean to just add suffering to a situation so we get these small tastes of what is a moment of suffering ending and this accumulated lesson of what's what it's like when it's there, what it's like when it's not there. As a truth, I think the radical nub of this is that the subjective experience of suffering in relation to circumstances is an inside job, you could say. It's preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. And that's the good news because it's it's not it's so easy and it's our deep habit to think that we have to fix everything that's happening before we can experience any more ease or freedom or well-being. And that keeps us running around in, in circles and tied up in knots in ways that tend to have the opposite effect in the world and make us relatively incapacitated in being able to actually help. 
So there's an author, Resma Menachem, the author of a book called My Grandmother's Hands. It's a beautiful book. He distinguishes between what he calls dirty pain and clean pain. So the paths of avoidance, blame, and denial are paved with so-called dirty pain. They only create more suffering, both for themselves and other people. Clean pain, he says, is about choosing integrity over fear. You know, people often ask, am I supposed to not suffer when I lose a loved one? Or at the, as someone asked earlier, in face of all the, all the tragic things going on in the world, so it's teasing out what is a clean, what is clean grief? What is a clean, righteous reaction to injustice and suffering in the world? Something that's empowering and strengthening and clarifying, not, not terrifying and depressing, right? And what clean grief is, you know, sad, crying, missing the person, valuing the person, loving the person, but not getting completely lost and disabled. You know, why did this happen to me? Why me? Oh, if only I had done this or that. And that sort of thinking that just twists the knife of of the loss. So clean pain is about choosing integrity over fear. He says it's about letting go of what is familiar but harmful, finding the best parts of yourself and making a leap with no guarantee of safety or praise. When you come out on the other side of this process, you will experience more than just relief. Your body will feel more settled and present. There will be a little more freedom in it and more room to move. You will experience a sense of flow. You will also have grown up a notch. You have to stand in your integrity, accept discomfort, and move forward into the unknown. So I think that's a beautiful description of some of the experience of less suffering, maybe not the complete end of suffering, but the relative freedom from suffering in relation to something that's happening. And it's not all about working with perceived difficulties either. The other side of it, being caught up in states of wanting and longing and craving, even to the point of addiction, we're always, we're trying to line up and control a steady stream of pleasures and desirable circumstances and get them to hold still, get things to be the way they want, and not noticing the quality of dukkha that's in that straining and wanting and grasping and longing. And so there's also the side of relate, how we relate to the transience of pleasure and the pleasant things. And we can't really make letting go happen. You know, it seems to come like a moment of grace. But the point is the clear recognition of when it does is one of the most important conditions for training the mind. It's like the carrot and the stick. We don't focus always on the stick of dukkha. We also appreciate the the value and the, and the relief of moments of not suffering. Um, uh, early experience in my practice back in the 90s that stuck with me really clearly then and all these years I was on retreat and I got one of these so-called vipassana crushes on a fellow retreatant uh, you know somebody I didn't know haven't never saw before and haven't seen since but oh you know this person oh they're walking near me they're noticing me I'm noticing them very very you know kind of typical thing that happens when you first maybe go on retreat and uh, in silence, not talking to people. 
but it became so stressful. It just was distracting me from why I was on retreat, you know, and it became an unpleasant obsession that I could not quite let go of. Then one morning I took a walk up on the hill above the retreat center and the sky was blue and it was a beautiful crisp morning and the whole thing just evaporated. And yet I think because I was of course primed with Dharma teachings, it was so clear that, Oh, this, this is freedom. This is what I want. This is a beautiful, great state of body and mind. So I really took it in. And then when I went back down the hill and there was the person and it's like, Oh, there's the person again. So the contrast of being caught up in longing and being free from longing was so clear that I kind of got, okay, there are ways to to experience well-being and ease and happiness that have nothing to do with getting what you want, or in other cases, similar to that, getting rid of something you think you don't want. So sometimes it's just this moment of grace that comes over you where you for some reason, it lets up and you take that in and trust taking that in, even though you don't know how to make it happen. You don't know what you did. You don't know how to get it to come back. Don't cling to that moment. Just appreciate it and trust that something in your system is learning. Ah, that that's that's a possible way to relate to this that actually has nothing to do with getting everything fixed. It's just clarity. Appreciate that. And sometimes you can actively experiment, as we will be doing in many ways this year with the different path factors. Maybe there's a moment where you kept silent or you spoke softly to an angry person or you just didn't say something that was on your mind. And then let in the result. Maybe there's just a lack of regret later. I often feel like I go around the house, you know, storming mad at people and imagine things I would say to them. But fortunately, I didn't really say them. And so then later on, I get to feel, wow, I'm, I'm so relieved that I just let that storm pass without acting on it. And that moment of relief is a moment of not suffering when there could have been suffering. There could have been all that regret and now a big mess to clean up and apologies and all that. And there isn't. So sometimes the, a moment of freedom from suffering is a, an absence of what could have been there if harm had been caused. So just letting in these moments. Gradually, this sense, this felt sense, this deep understanding of what is freedom from suffering, what does that feel like? It comes to be seen as this is what we truly want and need, that this is actually the most reliable basis for our well-being much more than any of the worldly things that we could get or get rid of that always seem to justify states of clinging, craving, and resistance. The delusion is that they're worth this kind of suffering when actually freedom from suffering is what makes all kinds of wholesome qualities come forth and be be possible to bloom in the world. But this does take cultivation. It's a long, slow process. So the fourth noble truth, that there is a path to the cessation of suffering, and we can cultivate it. The Buddha says the question is, what, when I do it, leads to long-term happiness and well-being for myself and others? And the answer that he gives, a lot of the guidance along the path, is in terms of these two words, kusala and akusala 
which are translated as wholesome and unwholesome or skillful and not skillful. Tanya touched on this a little bit, like in the sense of right, what's the right tool for the job. Wholesome, you know, it implies the whole. It's it's what's good for the whole, the whole of your being, the whole of our community, the whole world. It's not out of balance. It's not out of alignment. And skillful, that it's something that that is that we learn. It feels often like learning a skill, a skill of like how to steer our little boat through these waves. So, um, and it's so much better understanding skillfulness than bad, you know, this just wasn't skillful what I did. It's an old habit trying, all of our habits are trying to make us happy. They're trying to make us feel safe and happy, but they're just not doing it skillfully. So instead of beating ourselves up, we have, oh, not so skillful, not up to the latest wisdom of what actually works here. So we can turn and look at that. So these eight factors of the path, they're mirrors that will show us our conditioning. And somebody said self-knowledge is at least not always good news. You know, in some ways it is good news. Self-connection, self-care is good news. But seeing our conditioning is often a little not such good news. But these mirrors are what let us see what's going on. And if we can meet it with curiosity, then they become these eight transformational practices. So as we do this, it's very important to bear in mind how we practice. Practice itself can be undertaken wholesomely, skillfully, or unwholesomely and unskillfully with frustration and shame and self-criticism and impatience. Or can we touch into the opposite of those qualities so that we're practicing with non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. So as we practice, we get to another level of what's sometimes meant by right view, which is a deep transformation of our perceptual mechanism. So how we really see the world and the three ways that this um is usually described is we get this feeling for what is meant by dukkha. And it's more and more like, oh, I wouldn't go there, like touching a hot stove, you know, even thinking about, oh, I'm going to hate myself for this, or I'm going to blame somebody else for this. It's like, oh, why would I do that? That's not, I know better than that. So there becomes this understanding that gets built in about what is suffering. And when you're moving toward it, it's like an inner sense of gravity when you're moving toward it when you're moving against it and then the second thing is we begin to see this constantly changing nature of our direct experience so everything is changing and that helps with clinging because it's like the world is constantly in flux and things are good and bad and pain is a kind of vibratory intensity if you really pay attention to physical pain it's mostly it's got a lot of vibratory moments of more and less intensity and you know things things look good and then things look bad and we really don't know what's going to happen so as we begin to see this it lessens the belief that if we only hang on tighter we'll be able to get it all to hold still and be the way we want it to. So our perception shift where we know there's no point in clinging and grasping. The more often we see how things, okay, I thought it was going to be that way, but it turned out differently. Okay. I thought I was going to feel terrible. Now I feel good. So 
it everything is changing. And the third way that we begin, our perception begins to shift is taking things less personally. And that is a part of this understanding of conditionality and karma, that everything is due to conditions. It's a changeable flow of of conditioned events. It doesn't need to be taken as who I am, because that's very malleable and changeable over time. So we can loosen our grip on these mental habits of I making things like I'm stupid, you know, me making, caring about what everybody else thinks of me, what's in it for me, 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 me. We begin to see that that's kind of a center of clinging that doesn't doesn't need to be referenced so often. It does, it's a mental construct that isn't helpful to keep reconstructing. And mine, my my success, my failure, even though it depends on so many conditions that have nothing to do with us. So as we do that, we find this deeper groundedness, deeper strength, deeper confidence, deeper connection with ourselves and other people. I've always liked this quote from Henry David Thoreau. He was a bit of a Buddhist, so he probably got it from Buddhism. But he says, I know of no more encouraging fact than the unquestionable ability of man to elevate his life by a conscious endeavor. It is something to be able to paint a particular picture or to carve a statue and so to make a few objects beautiful. But it is far more glorious to carve and paint the very atmosphere and medium through which we look, which morally we can do. To affect the quality of the day, that is the highest of arts. Notice that he says morally, because there is this deep relationship between what we usually consider moral and ethical intentions, intentions of non-harming and non-greed, that are woven into the path. And the beauty is that we discover that there's this close mutual relationship, identity almost, between our own suffering and what we inflict on others. It's hard to make other people suffer without coming from a place of contraction and fear. So the interrelationship of these two. Yeah, so we're working with both how we respond when difficult things happen to us and in turn then what we put out into the world, how our outgoing actions of body, speech, and mind affect others. And as we learn what really helps to transform our own hearts and minds, then we can be more skillful and wiser about how we might help other hearts and minds evolve. So it's all for the good of ourselves and for the good of the whole world.